Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist. Join me as I seek out the small incremental changes being applied in other industries that we can learn from and that can be applied in healthcare. Can these changes bring immediate value, but also add up to the big improvements and revolution we need in healthcare? Come along with me to explore the possibilities. My innovative guests from around the globe have used small incremental improvements to achieve their moonshot. And today, I'm delighted to be joined by Kelly Howard. She is the founder and strategist at DigiVidBio, and she's also Rachel Regali's mother. Kelly, thanks for joining me today. Great to be here. Thank you. So we're going to get into this discussion pretty quickly, but I always like people to share a little bit of their background because context makes the world of a difference. Um, Tell us a little bit about you and how you arrived at this point in your career and your sort of intersection, um, you know, in healthcare professionally. Absolutely. So uh, eight years ago, I started my own digital marketing agency. Uh, We are focused on the biotech, life sciences, and med tech area. Uh, Clients include Natera, Illumina, um, and companies like that. And interestingly, well, I'll just say that those are some of the clients. So you're you're deeply invested in the healthcare space. Um, you uh, understand healthcare probably better than the average person because uh, you're involved in it. But in this particular instance, we're talking about something uh, that's very personal. And you know, first of all, thank you for sharing it. If you would. Tell us about Rachel and and her journey. Yeah, absolutely. So Rachel was diagnosed in October of 2021 with a rare form of cancer, Ewing sarcoma. Uh, Just to help everybody understand how rare that is, it is uh, they diagnose 200 to 250 cases a year. Um, She was having back issues and kept trying physical therapy and medications and couldn't find any relief. Finally had a scan and they found a Uh, baseball-sized tumor on her spine at the time. And when she was diagnosed in October of 2021, um, they typically many times don't stage cancers, but if they would have staged that, it was a stage, probably stage three, because of the size. It was localized, but it was a very large tumor in a very uh, scary place. So for anybody listening to this, uh, we will put a a link in the... um... Uh, notes around this, uh, linking back to the episode where I interviewed Rachel and she shared what is way more detailed story of her experience. And to be clear, you you almost gloss over it. But Rachel's experience was nothing short of a living hell of pain and constant dismissal through a healthcare system that said, ha, it's just back pain, it's a strain, it's this. And the reality was she had very serious issues ongoing that when she finally pushed and got scanned was discovered to be a uh, tumor that has, you know, some very challenging uh, outcomes and more importantly, very difficult to treat. She then goes through this process to attempt to get treatment with your help, and she describes this, without you, this would have been impossible. It was a mammoth climb of fighting systems, fighting lack of insurance, lack of coverage. Ultimately, you got coverage through charity care. Tell us a little bit about that piece of the journey. 
Yeah, so it took us about two months. Uh, oddly, uh, probably three months before Rachel was diagnosed, I pleaded with her to go onto the marketplace and get insurance, which she did. Uh, and you would have thought, okay, she's got insurance. We will be fine. But the fact that this was such a rare cancer, she needed to be treated by uh, people who understood this. Um, because it's a rare cancer, there wasn't a lot of standard treatments out there. Uh, not a lot of research in this area, as you can imagine. Uh, so we we uh, fought with insurance a little bit, and then we knew that Mayo was the place where they had the top sarcoma expert or a very good top, a very good sarcoma expert. So we applied, and it took us probably uh, two months, two two to three months, to finally get everything okay. We had already gotten into the system by going in through the ER when she was having very bad pain. So we were able to kind of get in the system, but insurance wouldn't pay for it. So it took us two months to fill out paperwork and kept checking and checking. And finally, we were able to get uh, able to get 100% charity care, which we were thrilled. And at the time, they told us it would be even after if if we got rid of the cancer, it would even continue on with scans and things like that. That didn't end up being the truth, but um, but that's kind of um, what it took to be able to get into the system. And I will tell you, Mayo was a wonderful place. Um, I have had the pleasure of working with a lot of hospital systems, and by far they were so cohesive. There was a multi a multidisciplinary team that did just amazing things, and um, so the the care there was really really good. So I, I just want to make sure we clarify. You talked about two months of, is it a total of four months before she starts getting treatment? Or yeah, it was it actually two months. months. Two, yeah, it was two months. months. But, mm -hmm. but even so, we're talking about an aggressive, rare cancer. It's yeah. been diagnosed and you essentially spun your wheels for eight weeks of mm -hmm. nothing going on clinically to resolve a problem of insurance and trying to get treatment. Let's just, you know, pause for a second and say how horrific is that for any parent, any person or individual, and if you believe that this can't happen to you, it can. And, you know, it may not be you, but it will be somebody close to you or a friend. Uh, we see it all the time. So now you're in, you get charitable care. Thank goodness for Mayo, they have something. And, you know, again, you can refer back to the story and listen, Rachel got treated and things, I, I would say, for the most part, went certainly better. I'm not going to say well, because I think it was still quite the journey with um, the treatments that she endured. But she reaches the end of that. What happens now? So after intensive chemotherapy for a year and proton beam radiation, um, they said that the tumor was no longer there, but there was still scar tissue and things from um, from the radiation and everything. So they uh, uh, in October, they basically say, OK, you're good to go. Just go find a, a medical oncologist, get a scan in a month. When we were there, you're so excited that this is over. I, I knew working and, um, you know, being around the oncology area, I knew it wasn't in remission. I knew that we had some time to go, but they basically, I was, the doctor was literally telling this and I'm just, I'm so excited. We're just want to get out of there. And they really just said, go out, find a medoc, get a scan. And I think Rachel heard a, a month. I heard a couple of months. I really didn't think we, I, I wasn't, I wasn't even paying attention. You're so excited that I literally thought, oh, great. Well, Rachel then tries to find a um, 
a medonk and she's not giving it the priority she should. Um, and I was thinking, okay, we're good. Now we just need to monitor scans. We should be good. Um, she ended up getting a scan in January. So she was released like towards the end of October. She ended up getting a scan in January and um, it showed up with a small re reoccurrence. And um, interestingly enough, uh, one of our, one of my clients, Natera, um, when we saw the reoccurrence, we started with um, an, uh, um, an oncologist who was actually a radiation oncologist who had her do a blood biopsy. I remember we were, it was January, we're in her office. We did a blood biopsy from Natera. And um, just because she believed in this, interestingly enough, the doc at Mayo really didn't believe in the blood biopsies. And this blood biopsy is to check for reoccurrence. These, um, these blood biopsies, when you use it in this way, basically can detect um, tumors or free-floating uh, cancer cells uh, almost six to eight months before it'll show up on a scan. Mm -hmm. So and I love this. I, I'm a big proponent of it. Um, so we started to use that. Um, it, it, and this is how even I wasn't taking it serious. I knew it, we saw it was a local reoccurrence. And my thought was, okay, it's a local reoccurrence. We've caught it early. So then um, we're trying to get, we're trying to get uh, what our radiation oncologist was telling us is that we need to get back into Mayo because they have proton beam. Nobody else in Arizona has it. So we are trying to get back into Mayo. We go back to Mayo and we're trying to get back in and they're telling us believe it or not you've got to you've got to do the whole the whole thing again we're going to have to have you fill out work for charity and we're going to try to push this through even though they had all the history there i mean it was it'd been less than 3 months 4 months for god's sakes so they had the history but they wanted us to go through that whole process again of applying for charity care which we did and we're waiting and we're waiting and i'm calling and i'm calling mayo and then uh, it becomes apparent that you know maybe we need to look at something else i mean the radiation oncologist at the time was saying she needs proton beam that's what she needs um so we then, so I then start fighting the insurance company to see if we could get um, an appeal and see if we could go directly and have them fund it. And that took months from the time she had a reoccurrence to the time it was not months. It took probably another four or five weeks. Meanwhile, this is a very aggressive reoccurrent cancer. And um, I keep going and jumping through hoops and having to take her back to a PCP and keep, keep in mind that her back was really starting to hurt again. That was a lot of pain. Um, we kept spinning our wheels, trying to get an insurance appeal that got turned down, trying to get, you know, back into Mayo. They hadn't given us a, uh, an answer. So we ended up on February 14th um, getting her in because we had a, a surgeon that said he could go in there and take off wouldn't be able to get margins, but he was able to go in and do a little reconstruction around her spine, which needed it, and also get some of the get as much a cancer out as he could. Um, so we did that on February 14th. It was horrible, was very painful. But then we thought, okay, maybe this buys us some time to hear back from a, another appeal with insurance and with Mayo. So we went in and did that. And he said it would be about five, four to five weeks. Um, that she should start feeling better because he went in and was able to reconstruct and do some caging around a vertebrae and to get cancer. Well, she comes home to our house and is convalescing and she was in a walker. Well, three and four weeks, it's not getting better. It starts to get worse. And um, four weeks into it, and of course, we didn't we didn't try to get her into chemotherapy because he said you, you shouldn't do you shouldn't do chemotherapy right now. She's still healing. Well, Come to find out four or five weeks and now she's really starting to hurt and it's not getting any better. And now she's going into a wheelchair. 
So now she's in a wheelchair. We're still trying to get appeals. We're trying, I'm still, now I'm like pushing even harder to try to get an appeal. I'm calling Mayo once a week, trying to find out if they've gotten, a, um, if they've heard anything back. Meanwhile, the radiation oncologist that we're working with is beside herself. Like I am calling, I'm texting where she is. She is calling me all the time. If you heard anything, you could tell the fear in her voice, which is scaring me. So we do a Natera, another Natera blood biopsy, uh, probably about five weeks after her surgery and her CT DNA markers are off the scale. And she calls me and says, you know, this could be because of the surgery. Sometimes when you do surgery or you do um, chemotherapy, it can it can make the CT DNA elevate because it pisses off kind of the, the cells. So I'm hoping that that's the case. Well, it wasn't. Um, then we go and we go in and get another scan and it shows it had metastasized. It had literally spread uh, to uh, her pelvic area, um, just multiple places in the body. And now it's, I mean, we, we the time, and I'm still, I'm still naive and I'm still thinking, all right, we'll look at clinical trials. Okay. So then we start looking at clinical trials. Oh, and by the way, when we got that scan back, it was like, okay, we got to get her in. We've got to do something systemic like um, chemotherapy or something. We've got to get back on top of this because it's obviously now spread. We're losing time. So we ended up taking her to Banner MD Anderson, found out that um, her insurance would was taken there. And I was hoping that the tie with MD Anderson being a top um, oncology provider, maybe there was you know that type of expertise there at the Banner location, Banner MD Anderson here took her out, um, got her in um, at one of their um, hospitals, and they did chemotherapy. It it helped for a couple weeks, but then these then we started seeing tumors that started showing up on her head, on her skull. So all of a sudden, she's starting to get these lumps. And we then, um, after she waited four weeks, we went back and did another cycle. Um, and the tumors on her head started to shrink a little bit, but it would only shrink for a short time. And she's still in a wheelchair at this time. So it just, it was truly like wildfire. Um, I was able to uh, reach out to another sarcoma specialist who actually was out of Santa Monica. And this is where we're, we're her fiance and myself are literally combing for um, clinical trials. We're talking to different people. So we're like, this is, and I literally stopped working. I took a leave of absence because I, I just had to put everything into this. Um, so we're looking at, at clinical trials. Well, we found a clinical trial we thought would be really good, but now it's a little too late and she wasn't healthy enough to get into the clinical trial. And now we're in that ferocious, ferocious uh, cycle. So we found, um, as I mentioned, we, uh, found a doctor who actually had pioneered some of the standard treatments for um, uh, sarcoma and Ewing sarcoma. Um, he was calling us at night. I mean, the care from a lot of these providers was just unbelievable that they would be calling us after they left work and, you know, we're, they're calling us on our cell phones and vice versa. And that was incredible. But at that point it was too late, even though we didn't think so. Like, and I, you know, kept telling Rachel, if it gets to be too much, you let me know. Um, but she she would, did not want to give up. We didn't want to give up. And we felt like we had a chance. We really thought that uh, that we could win this. But we just could not. But we, we had another clinical trial. We had booked airline tickets. We were leaving that morning. 
And now because she's on a lot of pain medication, she was on methadone and it, there was so much pain medication, quite frankly, we couldn't keep her hydrated. Like she was drinking huge things of water and we could not keep her hydrated. So she started to become dehydrated. She started to become anemic. So we literally were getting ready. We were packed. Danny was going to come over. We were going to take her to the, um, and she's in a wheelchair. We were going to get her on a plane and get her over where we were trying to get her into this last um, clinical trial that included immunotherapy that looks so promising. We literally that morning had to rush her into Banner MD Anderson because she was so, she was so listless and, and she just was out of it. So we took her in and that's when they checked her in and um, she was there for two weeks. We were still, I'm still desperate because I know that now we're, we're just, things are not looking good. This was the last two weeks. And so. Well, let let me just interject. I, I cannot imagine as a parent, the full-time stress and strain of this over on top of everything else that you do as a human being. Yep. And I just want to say how sorry I am. Thank you. Thank you. But I think this is important. It's really important to get out because um, that last two weeks was horrible because she then had a tumor on her cheek, which started to get really big. And um, we were trying to get her into, at least at that point, we were trying to get radiation or we tried to get chemo, but her red like her red platelet cells were too low to get her started on chemo. And we really thought we were so close, but they couldn't. It just her, her you know, your bone marrow gets spent when you've had so much chemotherapy. That's that's where we were. Um, so but this tumor kept getting bigger. So we thought, OK, let's do some radiation um, that would shrink it. Because now she can't, uh, she can't swallow very well. So she's on a feeding tube and she also can't talk really well. Mm. We were able um, to get her some uh, radiation to try to shrink the tumors and shrink this tumor. We got her radiation on a Friday. This was coming up on Labor Day weekend. I think, no, I'm sorry, Memorial Day weekend. And uh, so we got some, finally got, finally. And here's the other thing. Nobody is moving quickly, (laughs) which is really frustrating. This is what I mean by um, it's a rare disease, and I don't think they understood the urgency. I mean, it took us days to get her in to get just a palliative uh, treatment for the radiation. Mm. Well, we did that. So she had it done on Friday. That Saturday, her tumors all started shrinking significantly, absolutely significantly. Unfortunately, it was a little bit too late. Um, The other thing we did is I have a good friend who's a cancer researcher, I reached out to him about five days before she passed and said, this is what's going on. You know, what do you suggest? And he suggested, um, he's actually working on a cancer vaccine here in Phoenix, but he suggested um, it was uh, a deworming um, medication that actually had some strong anecdotal evidence um, for for treatment. So Danny and I, he went on, we found dosing. Um, There had not been uh, large clinical trials, but there had been smaller trials. So we got the dosing. It was everything that we could um, give her. She was on a feeding tube at this time. So we literally went out, bought everything, crunched it up, and we started putting it in her feeding tube two days before, actually three days before. But it was just too much too late. You know, it was our Hail Mary. Um, But it gave her hope, Hmm. good or bad. And she died on, um, so... We started giving it to her three days and then she died on Sunday. So, you know, but damn it, at least we tried. And then I, I would do it again. You know, it was too late. Uh, but 
it gave her hope. It gave Danny hope. And when she um, actually passed, she actually coded on that Sunday night. And uh, he was shocked. It was just kind of the power of positivity and belief. And I, I think back, are you better to have that positive to the very end? And I think, I think, yes, I absolutely think yes. Uh, let, let's start with a couple of things. First of all, thank you for sharing the story. Thank you for sharing Rachel and for Rachel even coming and talking about this because at the time she shared this whole thing. Yep. Um, you know, I'm devastated that she died mm -hmm. and that the journey was so awful. Um, but you're on this for a couple of reasons. One, to share that story. I, I think it's important to remember what an outstanding young lady she was and focus on her memory and why this is important. And, yeah. you know, it's easy to discount this and say, it's rare, you know, you can't solve all these problems. But I think it's very clear from this story, even if it wasn't solvable fully, mm -hmm. it could have been far, far better, as you heard and you said repeatedly throughout all of this, the care compassion from the clinicians in all of this who yeah. wanted to but were stimmied because of the system yep so we only a, a limited time and i think it's important to try and grab as much as possible mm -hmm. of what should people take away from this that you think could be done better that we can improve for everybody out there in healthcare yeah, three things. If it's a rare cancer, you got to know that puts you in a very different disadvantage. Um, not only do you have lack of research, because obviously um, resources go to the more prevalent diseases, which makes sense. Uh, but you have to understand, and I, I did not understand at what a disadvantage we were because her care team didn't understand it because we couldn't get her back to Mayo. They understood it. But quite frankly, even they made missteps um, too. You really got to get, I started reading many books about how to file appeals and what to do. That was important. It didn't help me. Um, but, but I think our insurance companies are so at, at a disadvantage. Uh, it puts us at a disadvantage of getting the care we need, but you just have to keep fighting and you have to arm yourself with as much information. There's some good books and um, advocates out there to help. Um, and the other thing is don't rest, don't just leave it to the care physician, don't leave it to your care team, get out there and do the research. It can be scary, but there are friends. I know I had friends saying, you're gonna be doing research and it's gonna scare you. So if you need me to dig into some of the research, it's a little scarier, let me know. That probably was a great piece of advice that I didn't take um, because I just was so passionate. Um, and if I would have seen that, Rachel's chance of reoccurrence was more than 30%. I probably would have been more vigilant. Um, but I, I think that's another thing is you just can't, you just can't rest. You just can't assume that your care team uh, knows it all. They, it's impossible for them to know it all, but you just, you've got to take some responsibility and get out there and advocate. So I, I'm, I'm going to pull out a few things here. I think it's important to sort of highlight. So, you know, the rare cancer works against you. And let's be clear, rare cancers multiplied up by all of the different rare cancers that could be used. So important point number one. Um, 
getting familiar with the whole process. And, you know, one of the things I would say, you and I both in this healthcare space, and I have fought the system. Um, I have ostensibly won, if there's such a thing, on, on occasion. And, you know, I've actually been very public about it. Um, one of the things I would say for those that don't understand is find resources and individuals. And there are patient advocates and folks and institutions that will work and, you know, support. And that brings me to the other thing. And you talked about it. There's people out there. You have a network. We Hopefully you do. If you don't, I'm, I, I find one. Um, people care and you need frank, open and honest conversations. Um, we, we have to be honest with each other about what's going to happen, what the potential is. You know, this is a very difficult conversation. We're not good at this in society in general. Sure. And having open and honest conversations and pulling in those resources to allow others to help you, extraordinarily valuable. This is not something that cannot be solved. There are lots of steps throughout all of this. And I think arming yourself with the information and the understanding, and more importantly than anything else that I want everybody to take away, is if you think this can't happen to you, just wait. It can and it will. It may not be you individually, but it will be somebody that you know or care about deeply and it will be a shocking transformation, and it will be too late at that point to navigate this system. So I beg you to keep trying to fix the business of healthcare as if your life depended on it, because one day soon it will. Unfortunately, we've reached time. I have to thank you again for being willing to share what is a very, very difficult story, Kelly. Thank you for joining me and sharing your story and that of Rachel on the show. Thank you. And you're, I, I, I applaud the work you do because you're absolutely right. I didn't think it would happen to me because I eat, sleep, and, and breathe. I'm even a member of ASCO, for God's sakes. Um, so quite frankly, um, it can. So th thank you for the work you're doing, Dr. Nick. It's absolutely monumentally important. Thanks for joining me today. Do you have any better ideas or have you found a small incremental change that's brought about a big improvement in your world? Let's continue the conversation on our hashtag, The Incrementalist, or share with me at DrNick1 on Twitter. You can find more information about the show on our program page at healthcarenowradio.com. And tune in next time to hear my discussions with leaders and innovators from around the globe who've revolutionized their space by using small incremental improvements to achieve their moonshot. I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist, and I'm starting a revolution through evolution. <laughs> <laughs>